0: Thank you. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'd like to wish a sweeter new year to those celebrating Rosh Hashanah. And today we're going to have a roundtable discussion of the 2020 election campaign and electoral strategy with perspectives brought from outside as well as inside the United States. Journalist and prolific writer Paul Mason joins us from the UK with his insights from the British election that saw the defeat of radical labor and the victory of Boris Johnson's Brexit politics. Paul worries that the Democratic Party strategy against Trump here misreads the right in some of the same ways that Corbyn did, and he shares his concerns with us. Ed Broadbent, former leader of the NDP in Canada, brings his views about the campaign from his own strategic and organizational perspective. And Progressive Democrats of America's Executive Director Alan Minsky joins us with his inside perspective of organizing on-the-ground electoral strategy including what impact the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg will have on the campaign in these last six weeks. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to be with you today. We're going to do something a little different. I have three terrific, people on this show, and we're going to have a lot of interaction between them, Paul Mason, Ed Broadbent, and Alan Minsky. The idea literally was proposed by Paul after he heard Alan a couple of weeks ago and wanted to bring the British perspective into electoral strategy here in the United States. And so I thought that what we should be doing is having the British perspective from Paul Mason, the Canadian perspective from Ed Broadbent, and of course our own Alan Minsky right here. Now, the death on Friday of Ruth Bader Ginsburg changes everything. But at the same time, some of the issues that each of them were thinking about prior to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death are still relevant. So we will be able to go into all of those. And I'm going to have each person do a sort of intro to their ideas, and then we'll have cross-talk between us, and each of us can ask the other questions and come up with that. I also want to say that I'm beginning with the news that Stephen Cohen, a frequent guest on this show and a longtime scholar of the Soviet Union and Russia, died yesterday, and he was very frequently on this show, and I owe him a debt of gratitude. His voice is going to be missed, but his many books and articles and his style of always questioning and making arguments with evidence will remain. So let me begin by introducing our guests. I'm beginning with British journalist and prolific writer Paul Mason. He's going to join us, as I said, with his perspective on the 2020 election, bringing insights from the recent election in Britain that saw the defeat of radical labor under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn and the victory of Boris Johnson and Brexit politics. Paul's the author of six books and Who knows? He may have written another one since Mm -hmm. I read his bio. (laughs) But the latest one that I know about is Clear Bright Future. He also wrote Post-Capitalism, Why It's Still Kicking Off, everywhere, many more. And I think we've talked about every one of them, perhaps, but one on this show. Paul's also the former economics editor at both BBC Newsnight and Channel 4 News. He was on the front line of all of the crises of this century from the economic collapse in 2007, Hurricane Katrina, the Indignados protests in Spain and then in Greece. And he's uh, done a documentary series, This is a Coup on the Greek Crisis. But he's no longer working in public service TV journalism because he wanted to free himself from that in 2016 and throw himself into Politics in the Brexit Crisis. He writes a weekly column. You can find him in The Guardian, New Statesman, and elsewhere. Ed Broadbent is a former New Democratic Party leader and founder, a member of Parliament in Canada from 1975 to 1989. He's a professor, a troublemaker, agitator, and analyst, socially engaged, always eager to share his views and knowledge with young people. He is the founding president of Rights and Democracy and the Broadbent Institute, which is a progressive think tank, look it up. He's an expert in the theory and practice of policymaking. And I always say this, Ed, whenever you're on the show, he's the best prime minister Canada never had. And, <laughs> uh, and it was known as Honest Ed. And in a era of contemptuous, mean-spirited public discourse, Ed is an oxymoron, a very decent Canadian politician. Alan Minsky comes to us, Executive Director of the Progressive Democrats of America, and he's going to join with his analysis of the campaign perspective of electoral strategy now that the conventions are over and we have the new, let's call it, kinks in the road. Alan is also a lifelong activist, senior producer of this program, former KPFK program director, creator and producer of political podcasts for The Nation and Jacobin, and a contributor to Common Dreams and Truth Dig. So there is our panel, as we call it. Let's just start, Paul Mason, with you, and thank you for staying up late on a Saturday night in Britain to join us. And I know that you're very concerned about the direction of this campaign. You sent me a list of bullet points. Let's just begin (laughs) with your perspective from Britain and your experience.
1: Okay, and and it's great to be on the programme again. And very sorry both about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Cohen. Maybe we'll talk about both of them. From where I'm sitting, and I've covered the the US political scene for 20 years and and US social movements, the words of the Marxist Antonio Gramsci ring in my ears. The first requirement of, of politics is to have an absolutely clear analysis of the situation. And I don't feel that anyone any senior politician in America has yet stood up and said, hey, everyone, here's a very clear analysis of where we are. And for me, it's this. Trump intends to steal the election. Okay, we know that. It's clear that the current phase of that strategy involves stirring protest. So protests like Portland, protests like the protests in Rochester, all of those things whereby then the militias, the Proud Boys, uh, the MAGA people, move in, and create night-after-night headlines about violence. It's very clear what that's designed to do, to make conservative-minded people who might be thinking about not voting Trump to vote Trump because the whole wages of whiteness are going to be stolen from them. That's point A. Beyond that, he's going to invalidate the mail-in vote. Uh, That's where the significance of the Supreme Court now lies. After that, this is what I predict he will do. I am writing another book at the moment, and it's about fascism. And I've been studying a lot Mussolini. Mussolini invented the concept of Antifa. Most people don't know this. Mussolini never wrote the word anti-fascist until after an anti-fascist movement was set up. And after that, he said continually to the uh, Italian ruling class, you face a choice, a violent anti-fascist government or me. And that's what Trump's next move is. So this is what the whole framing of the Oregon fires around Antifa, or Antifa as we say in Europe, is teeing up, it's setting up that choice you, for the American people and a violent anti-fascism that's going to steal your right to be white and supreme or me. I then think it's absolutely clear that in the week before the election, there will be trouble will be stirred, Whether who knows who will stir it. The aim will be to allow the militias and the Caravans to move into the swing states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, etc. On the night he will claim victory because the whole mail-in thing, you know, will distort the result. And finally, he will then frame any legitimate attempt by Biden to claim victory as a violent insurrection against the Constitution. Now, if I can see that, if you are nodding your head and I can see you via Zoom, Susie, it is absolutely clear to most people watching this from outside. And yet, you open the New York Times, you open the Washington Post, I'm afraid to say you listen to a speech or intervention by Bernie Sanders or AOC and no one wants to say this. Now, I understand why, because to say it, it, it's like, again, a lot of people during the rise of Hitler didn't want to say in mid-1932, do you know what, it looks like this guy's going to win. Not fairly, he's just going to steal democracy because people wanted to cling to the goodness of constitution or to the supreme court or in your case people wanted to cling to the idea that it's all savable by normal means it isn't the point i want to make from a european perspective is that as you know i some of your listeners will know the structure of our progressive left is different we have social democratic parties we have left parties we have trade unions we have social movements but if a movement happens like portland or like any of the big protest movements that you've had, those movements would have been integrally part of it. And as in the movie Selma, what would have happened is someone would have said, look, the movement, the main aim of the movement is a bigger thing. We need to learn how to mobilize and demobilize and not continually play into the hands of the enemy. And my real frustration watching American politics is that, you know, I'd love to hear from Alan in a minute, who, who is a strategist. Is that there are many strategies, but there's no strategic leadership. Um, I really want to say you could create it in a day. You could really, literally create in a day a movement to save America. But that's what you're going to need to do. So that's my kind of two pennyworth from sitting over here in London.
0: Wow. I'm thinking about everything that you just said. And of course, want to ask follow-up questions. But just one little point before we go to Ed. And I think that it's well said that you compare European governments, parliamentary systems, and the way that they relate to Movements on the ground. And we have a very different situation in one respect here, and that is the relationship of the Democratic Party to its Mm -hmm. base, which is to the left. I think David Frum said years ago that the Republicans fear their base, the Democrats hate theirs. And in this election, now that you see such a mobilized electorate in terms of young people, millennials, those who were in the Bernie Sanders movement there's no interest, it seems, of the Democratic leadership and the Biden campaign to see those people as an asset and something yeah. that can help build in this campaign. And that that's a danger. But now I'm going to move to Ed. Ed Broadbent, as I just said, is founder and member of parliament in Canada of the New Democratic Party. And Ed avidly watches American politics and knows what's going on. And, and like Paul and like Alan, is also a strategic thinker and is immediately, as I know from private conversations, worried about the direction of this campaign. So, and I'm going to let you come in with your remarks and then we'll go from there.
2: I'm happy to follow that uh, apocalyptic view from Paul, part of which I share and part of which I hope is seriously mistaken. But I've had enough experience as a politician in my own country to have some modesty about analyzing and offering prescriptions, as I'm about to do, the politics of another country. I've been probably more often wrong about the country I know best, which is Canada. And dare I say it, I may well be wrong about what I'm going to say now. But let me pick up where I strongly agree with Paul, which is that what we've been watching is a as a campaign, notably, especially from the Republican Convention on, is a, a white, racist, fascist campaign. A campaign based on fear and helping to create fear where it doesn't already exist. I won't repeat everything Paul has said, but I agree broadly with the, the, what he said about the Demonstrations that are going on, and how this feeds into the Trump campaign agenda, which is that if you vote for Joe Biden, you also get blacks' violence moving into your neighborhood. And it's that straight kind of connection that I see from here in Canada, anyway, whether it's in the New York Times or other mainstream media, that is being fed by the Republicans to the people of the United States. What should be done about this? I really do want to hear what Alan has to say in particular, who's really close to it all. But from outside, picking up from what Susie has mentioned, I've been astonished that there hasn't been a greater effort by the Biden people to mobilize, to integrate in a very serious way, the high degree of leftist positive activism that's coming from AOC and from Bernie Sanders who have gone out of their way, seems to me, to make it clear that as democratic socialists, their agenda is quite different from Biden's, but the top priority is beating Trump and getting that, whatever we want to call him, fascist or neo-fascist, out of American politics. They've made the steps to cooperate with the leadership of the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party, at least seen from here, hasn't really moved in a way to engage them. Again, as an outsider, I would say what has to be done is to combine it to to get them involved, is to combine a commitment to racial justice and reform of the criminal law system with a commitment to deal with the deep inequality that exists in the United States. And part of that should be the New Green Deal agenda, so that if they, being the leadership, the Biden people, took on the economic reforms, basically, that Bernie has helped integrate into their program and talked in a passionate way about that in a passionate way about racial justice. It seems to me that they could combine into an integrated movement with mainstream, more conservative Democrats, all this wonderful activism. Young democratic socialists, whether they are white or black or Latinos, and that enthusiasm, I think, has to be mobilized. Or we could be watching a shift, further shift in the polls towards Trump, and we know what that could ultimately mean. Well, maybe I'll leave it there. I think, unlike Paul, I think that I'm not as convinced that doom is right before us. I think it might be avoided. But if the Democrats don't take steps, at least similar to what I'm talking about, it seems to me we will get Trump and then we may have a potential crisis of very significant proportions. Let me just add this footnote. The one thing that I found encouraging in terms of our recent American politics has been, the, of all things, the positive response to the leadership of the leadership of the U.S. military to Trump's efforts to undermine democracy and making public announcements that their fundamental loyalty is to the Constitution of the United States and not to the president. That is a positive sign. And and similarly, some of the recent Supreme Court decisions in the U.S. have not gone at all the way that he wanted. So in the post-election period, It may be the case that some other aspects of political, economic structure of the U.S. may play a role in preserving democracy if indeed it is threatened by Trump.
0: Before I bring in Alan Minsky, I want to direct a question back, I think, to Paul and others can think about it. Paul, you come to this from the example of Brexit, and so long as the narrative in the last election, two elections in Britain was about Brexit. It seemed that the conservatives could define the agenda for the campaign. And as much as Corbyn in that instance wanted to create, you know, an alternative that was very similar to Bernie Sanders, a politics for the many, not the few, he was outflanked by, I think, by that Brexit debate. And so the reason I wanted to bring that up is that so long as the campaign here in the United States was about Trump's handling of the pandemic, the fact that we're inching in on 200,000 deaths and six million cases, and now we have this week the news that the Trump administration rewrote the CDC guidelines to play down tests. They've brought in a neuroradiologist and a part-time professor in public health to kind of oversee or let's call it censor what the CDC is saying. And that seems to be backfiring. And then the question, I guess, becomes, do you see a parallel to the Brexit thing? So long as they can keep the dynamic or the question about the pandemic, then the Democrats can take charge of the discourse. But if it's about law and order and violence and all the rest of it, no. And then, of course, when Allen comes in, he'll probably factor in the, the Supreme Court, which is incredibly important. But uh, Alan, if you don't mind, I'll let Paul come in just on that one point. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not just the experience of Britain. Again, it's the experience of Germany in the Weimar Republic. Let's start with that. Wilhelm Reich, the psychiatrist, mass psychology of fascism, he said, look, we, the left, filled a sports stadium with working class people and lectured them for four hours about economic statistics. The Nazis the next night filled the same sports stadium and just shouted blood, honor, land, hope. Okay? No amount of saying, Hey guys, let's talk about economics works. You have to be able to win the emotional battle. Now Jeremy Corbyn faced a really tough problem in the in the same exactly the same way that, that for example, in the American Midwest, in parts of the North Midwest, you've got working class people who are enraptured now by the narrative of Trump of make America great again. Even let's remember what's happened to Trump's narrative. I think it's moved into a kind of family dynasty narrative as well, which is very easy for powerless people. We should also say we're going here in Britain today. We've had one of those demos here QAnon. QAnon is playing a role of a, it's kind of an entry level drug, gateway drug for full Trumpism for a lot of people. So, what didn't work in Britain when everybody was getting into their nationalist, xenophobic kind of um, was for Jeremy Corbyn to say, Hey, everyone, think about economics. Because, again, I'll go back to Wilhelm Reich. He said, They know they're unemployed. They know the economic situation is terrible. It's just they have a different solution to it. Their framework is it's us and them, and us is in this case, white people in America and them, is the black and Latino and then quote-unquote cultural Marxist. Other. The American progressive movement, I believe, has to learn from our mistakes. For whatever reason, we never went onto the territory of culture war and said, look, we don't want to fight you over your values. Your values are your values. But here's our vision. Here's our vision for the kind of Britain. And I think it would be really easy to do, in America to say we want an America that is democratic, that makes peace, that keeps the peace so you can keep your quasi-imperialist role if you want. It's just that we don't want it to be run by a crime family. I do believe, for example, that there are, I mean, it's become like a a heresy on the left to say that there are moderate Republicans. Okay, If you say the word moderate Republican on left Twitter, you're almost a class traitor. But there have to be. I've met them They have to be persuadable. Otherwise, you're just into basically what we have here in Northern Ireland, where we have a Catholic-Protestant-sectarian divide. It's just a headcount. Let's have a headcount of the racists and a headcount of the anti-racists. and It's who can count the most heads. That's what the election is. I do believe there is a middle, and I believe Biden is actually not a bad person to garner those votes. But I am critical, actually, of, of Senator Sanders in particular, because if you look at his Twitter feed, it's all—it is really what Jeremy was doing. It's hey, everybody, think about economics. And if it worked, it would have worked already. So that's that's my big question: What are you going to do beyond that?
0: Okay, and Alan, I know you're very anxious to come in, and I'm sure Ed is too. But let me give you, you know, a chance to say what you think the strategy is, and maybe responding as well to these very incredible points that both Paul and Ed are bringing up, Alan Minsky.
3: Yeah, there's a lot that's been said that I'd like to comment on and probably too much for me to do in such a short amount of time. I just want to start off with the, I think Paul painted two halves of a scenario relating to Trump's strategy in the election. I think there's growing awareness, but no strategic or even tactical response yet that has been really presented by anybody as to how to contend with the second half of the scenario that Paul describes, which is It is very likely right now on election night because of the three probably most significant swing states of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, they do not start counting absentee ballots until after election day. And um, with so many mail-in ballots coming in and with Trump railing against mail-in ballots, Republicans will vote in person, Democrats will mail in their ballots, and the results on election night will show Trump ahead in all three swing states. It's a nightmare scenario just for that reason. The first half of what Paul said in the scenario yes, those things are happening, the Proud Boys, et cetera. It's very dangerous. And I do not think Paul is incorrect in believing that that is a significant aspect of Trump's strategy. And I also acknowledge that the Democratic Party, for sure, and the entire of the pro Biden forces, does not have any clarity in calling it out, highlighting it and coming up with a response. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. One is it's not clear how much those things will be happening because Paul is saying that they are going to happen, he's talking about the future and they haven't happened yet, okay? And that goes into a context in a country which uh, didn't have fascist regimes in the 30s the United States for all of its problems even in 2000. You had actually Republicans go to one office and have a little bit of a mini preppy riot. Democrats sat on their hands almost entirely to the incredible frustration, by the way, of the African-American community in the state of Florida. And, you know, this has been the recent history of the Democratic Party. And as such, all of the forces that align and support the Democratic Party, they have been weak. They have been not forthright. The Republicans have been insistent. They've been iron willed. And they basically steamrolled their way to taking the presidency when it was stolen through the apparatus of the candidate's brother in the state of Florida. I mean, it was pretty transparently obvious when you look back on it. And it was one of the most outrageous episodes in American history. And for what it's worth, it is true that the Bush administration lived heavily under that cloud until September 11, 2001. But still, they got away with it. okay? And the Supreme Court got packed, which, of course, is is relevant here. So what's the strategic approach to this? Okay, this is where I can provide some information. I cannot, first of all, I'm not, I I guess I have a voice in the devising of strategy in a wing of the sort of operation of the broad pro-Biden, as it were, coalition right now. And in fact, more pointedly, rather than pro-Biden, we are very active participants in the organization called United Against Trump. And it is made up of a large group of, DSA is not a part of it. It did come out of the organizations that made up people power for Bernie. There were nine founding organizations. DSA, for instance, participated in that, but they dropped out when we became the anti-moderate table, and then we moved into the United Against Trump, effectively pro-Biden group, for all the left-wing national organizations. So Justice Democrats, Sunrise, PDA, Our Revolution, Center for Popular Democracy, Working Families Party, People's Action, where we meet once a week, you know, and we are... We talk about the things that Paul is talking about. We're very much going to try to have people out at the polls on election day to counter the people who are armed and militant. There are a number of other organizations are doing that. Now, more moderate organizations just started something called Protect the Results. Indivisible took the lead on that. We've signed on now, too. Hopefully, our logo will be up there within the day. That is about protecting the results. But as I just said, probably the people who started that didn't really realize what I just said. They were all talking about November third, November fourth. Well, on November fourth, the numbers may actually look really bad because of what I just said and what Paul said. So, all this begs the question: How is this going to be brought forward in a very clear way so that the American people understands what could transpire over the next whatever it is now, six, seven weeks, and then in the immediate aftermath of Election Day? At the moment, I think there's almost more awareness about the need to be vigilant and mobilized on November 3rd, 4th, 5th, going forward. Not so much in the first half of Paul's scenario. And again, the reasons for that is the general fact of American democracy and elections taking place in largely uninterrupted ways for decades and arguably a few centuries. The elections have happened. There's been a peaceful transition of power. And so You know, this this prevailing myth of it can't happen here, which is a a phrase that always sort of haunts American political reality is something that uh, all too many people are probably still all too comfortable with at this very hour. As for the rise of fascism in the United States, that will stick. First of all, I do think if the scenario plays out where Trump is able to hold on to power through some machinations, I I just can't see that sticking in the country. But again, it's also true that there's no strategical preparation for that scenario. So I definitely hear Paul on that front. But again, the the demographics, the makeup of the country, the forces that support Trump, how strong are they? How strong and what capacity do they have to have, you know, basically they have about 25 to 30 percent support because of all the people who don't vote. Whatever you say about the people who don't vote, they may be tacitly willing to go along, but they don't actively endorse The transition of our country away from whatever this is a constitutional democratic republic of the type that it is towards something that is a you know family-led proto-fascist or fascist structure or perversion of the traditional system and then you definitely have a larger block of population than that 25 or 30 percent of the population that in no way is going to be drawn into it now that's not anything other than an equation for a social catastrophe But the establishment of a stable, like Mussolini-esque, multi-decade fascism in the United States built off of Trumpism, again, I only see the prospect on the horizon, maybe Paul can respond to this, of that engendering massive social chaos, which of course you want to avoid, but not the establishment of anything like a smooth, firmly established, far-right, proto-fascist, Trump-led government in the near future.
0: I also want to just bring it in, and I'm sure Ed wants to address this as well as Paul, that most of Trump's gambits have gone nowhere, in a way. I mean, he he's now possibly being boosted by being able to brag that he's going to change the court forever and get rid of Obamacare and Roe v. Wade. The vast majority of the population in the United States is exhausted by Trump. And, and the chaos could be a reason that people just aren't going to want to put him back. And I think the other side of it is that while everyone is talking, uh, a lot of people are frightened about a new civil war and armed white vigilantes, as you've seen showing up. We saw it right here in Studio City, the Caravan of Trump, supporters trying to provoke violence several weeks ago, going down Ventura Boulevard. But that stuff doesn't stick. And people in Portland, ordinary mothers and veterans and others were very angry by the presence of those federal troops, uninvited by the governor, the mayor, and everyone else. And most people see those being the forces that are stoking violence, not the other side. So I don't know on that one. But I I do take Paul's point about the power of emotion very seriously, because clearly I think Bernie Sanders and all of the progressive forces want to see you know, more action on Medicare for all. They want to force the Congress to actually do something about not just the pandemic, but the catastrophic economic situation we're in now where they did not come through with a new relief package. And we've got the longest lines in front of food banks and people going hungry and schools not open. And, you know, just this really weaponizing uh, wearing a mask. You really do have a terrible situation. So I'm going to first, Ed, do you want to come in on this? And then we'll let Paul. Go back to Alan. We can okay. I want to
2: pick up where you sort of left off. That's to say, the general population of of the U.S. What struck me from up here in Canada in recent weeks and months has been the nature of the original protest movement about the violent killing of black Americans by the police. It wasn't just black Americans that were demonstrating, but in so many cities and some of the demonstrations I saw in support of the Black Lives Matter were whites. And I think the general disposition of the American population itself is not heading towards a fascist outcome. We'll see what happens in, in the election. But I think it's, it Paul himself has said, the, the kind of moderate Republican does exist. People like David Frum and many others one could mention that have become almost almost violent themselves in opposition to Trump, so there is a sense behind the democratic strategy of just trying to replace the chaos with something they call normalcy or some of the people just want the, the chaos to stop. and this true, I think, not only of the so-called white people in suburbia. But it's true of of people in, uh, I'm sure, downtown L.A. or New York City, they too want the chaos of Trump and related violence to stop. And I also, I maybe didn't make it clear myself, believe strongly in what Paul has said about the need for passion. It is absolutely essential, I think, to mobilize the young Americans, but not just young Women Americans, uh, Latinos, the great cosmopolitan richness of society, they have to feel that they have a leader that really cares and has an alternative vision of what the United States can be. And the ingredients are there, I think, even in their modified program that is not anywhere near what Bernie would want, but quite sensibly Bernie has supported, it seems to me, but we need to bring that together, that Biden has to make a greater effort. But again, I, maybe I, I ask the Americans on this program, Biden, it seems to me, in some of the video clips we've been seeing on the news, has put some passion in himself. It isn't just a cold economics argument. It's, in fact, he's talked about a battle for the soul of America. I think he used that language. And I think that is very much the case. And they probably have to do more. That's all I'm saying from abroad to get the latent progressive activism
1: that's in the Democratic Party out there.
0: Okay, Paul, do you want to come back on that?
1: Yeah, I just want to say that it's great to hear about uh, United Against Trump and protect the results. And I think that I would I would say to you know any people on the left in the United States who are listening to this that the only reason we had left governments in the 1930s that that temporarily defeated fascism in Europe is because the left and liberalism formed united governments. It was called the Popular Front. If you pick up a a left newspaper or go on a left website today, you'll find out the Popular Front was a disaster, terrible catastrophe. The fact is that, that there would have been no left government in Spain had the Spanish liberals and the nationalists indeed, the Catalan nationalists, united with the socialists and the communists. They had a united list. That's what surprised the united list of the right. And we get to the middle of 1936, and the same thing happens. The liberals and the left formed a joint government in France. And this was a a hinge of history. Now, the reason for raising this is not because, see, I don't think Trump is in, in any way, shape or form a fascist obviously there is a fascist movement that supports him and i would emphasize the role of qAnon rather than the role of say the pro boys or the various traditional militias or the sheriffs qAnon is the kind of the the friction free way that you move towards a project of an authoritarian dictatorship if you read qAnon what they fantasize about trump doing is what they want him to do they want guantanamo to contain Hillary Clinton and Obama and various Hollywood celebrities. That's what they want. Now, to fight it, I think it's, it's a question of, let's be clear what it's not. It's not a question of capturing the middle ground. The middle ground exists, and we're going to have to get centrist voters to vote for Biden. But it's about capturing the initiative, getting inside, what well, in the military they say, getting inside the decision cycle of the opponent. All I observe from here is Trump getting inside the decision cycle of Biden and the left. And that's what worries me. I hope that you are right in the sense that we have to see the federal intervention into Portland and the various other attempts to stir anti-anti-fascist violence. I see it as, yes, a gambit that was the response of that middle America being unenthusiastic about Trump. So you've got your base bedrock of white supremacists, but the the classic person who lives in a Midwestern city is not sure they've got a small business or they work for a big company. They would naturally vote Republican, but they're saying, look, this guy's crazy. What Trump did is he created a new narrative. And the narrative is, unless I'm in power, there will be a violent anti-fascist uprising. And I, all I ask my, my pleas with, with their American comrades and colleagues is to, to think creatively about that for example the don winslow videos the lincoln center videos these are great videos what i worry about them is we produced tons of videos just like that in both elections trying to appeal to that middle ground and in the end they didn't cut through in the way we thought that they would what is cutting through i've seen research on this is the face-to-face canvassing Uh, the face-to-face canvassing seems to be cutting through in a way that social media stuff isn't but yeah i I mean you just don't want to be waking up on the morning that it happens without a plan and you just don't want to be waking up thinking we didn't have a plan in that sense it wasn't supposed to be this way if it's emotion then the thing of course there to do then is to communicate it to everybody because my sense may be distorted by social media is that i mean i i I'm, I'm in touch with, and I read lots of anti fascist lots of black liberation movements in America. I've read people saying, prepare for dual power. Now, if I was in America, I would say to people, let's not prepare for dual power. Let's prepare for a constitutional handover of power from one president to another.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Paul, I'm curious to ask you, where do you find in Trump the evidence for your argument that
1: what he's saying, if you don't elect me, you'll get fascism? No, it's the if you don't elect me, you'll get a violent anti-fascist government. It is a straight copy of Mussolini's Antifa. argument. Yeah, Antifa. What what Mussolini did is he created the duopoly in the minds of the Italian elite, that it's either fascism or it's violent anti-fascism. Liberally, he wrote many articles saying liberalism is over, your time is over. And I, I think that All I'm saying is that I think those who who use the word fascist about Trump are wrong, but there has been an evolution while in power. And the evolution has been towards the family dynasty project, remaining power to avoid prosecution and jail time. I see Alan wants to talk about that.
3: Yeah. Yeah, And I think actually Ed not having heard that and Paul having heard that probably has to do with Paul doing some research on the QAnon front. What's happened over here, Paul, And this is true for me too, as I'm sure it is for Ed and Melisa and Susie. Unless you actively try to break out of your algorithmic silo, you're not really seeing what the other side is saying. Now, it is my understanding that Paul's correct. Over about the past three weeks, what has started to pick up as a right wing meme is that the anti police demonstrations, anti police, right, quote unquote, were Hmm. going to sweep through society, and the order that the Trump supporters you know, value in America was going to be overthrown by the mob. So this is the idea that they were going to, and and you see this in right-wing talking points now. And one of the key moments was that St. Louis couple during the Republican convention and picking up from that kind of logic. So one of the problems, again, and this goes towards, again, even for those of us in United Against Trump, you know, how willing are we to do to go into those silos that we're not inside of? And it's very difficult to break out of it. We all are sort of existing inside our echo chambers, and uh, the algorithms have us separated. And so, you know, watching Fox News is constitutively different than watching, and Fox News isn't the half of it, well, it is the half of it, at least, because it's a separate silo, but then, you know, to go into QAnon and to go into the logic, because I do think, I do think that QAnon, it is true, has a greater degree of traction than the people who are reading the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, listening to NPR understand.
0: One thing I want to bring in, it, it relates to what Paul just said about face-to-face canvassing works better. And now they're showing in studies that it isn't just the door-knocking, scripted, you know, five-minute, but the actual long conversations that people get involved in that act- that moves people. But now we're in a pandemic, and we have to socially mm. distance, and we have to do all this stuff from home. You know, it makes everything that much more difficult. And it also makes it easier for the right, I think, in that respect. You know, I do want to bring in the impact of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, because it changes the narrative slightly away from, you know, the idea that Trump has been trying to put forward that, you know, if we don't keep the Democrats out, we're going to have the seditionary forces overtaking the U.S., you know, and you've seen now... people in his entourage having to leave for having made these uh, statements that seem even worse than QAnon, just plain crazy, dark shadows, and uh, maybe you guys don't know about this with Caputo and and now the other guy that's had to leave as well. They've gone a little bit too far. But to bring it back to how this campaign goes forward, what kind of campaigning, and given the death that now that this will mobilize both sides, we saw $20 million raised on Friday night after the death of uh, Ginsburg for Democratic forces. It's going to motivate a lot of Democrats to come out, but it's also going to mo- motivate Right-wing religious conservatives who may not have liked everything about Trump, but now see a chance to really change—you know, the uh, Roe v. Wade and other issues. So, let's pick that up as a point. And who wants to come in first on that? Go ahead, Alan.
3: Uh, well, I'll just say, for one thing, is Twitter is a little better than the other ones. If you go to Twitter and you look at the trending topics, you will see a mix of right-wing and left-wing, and so it was jarring for me to go on to Twitter last night when I got the news. That many of the and I tried to do the research because there these rumors that were flying around that four Republican senators had said they would not support, you know, I and know. it was false, particularly around Romney. There was a, something people could point to that Murkowski had said previously. So I tried to I put their names and see what saw what was trending and what came up were a whole bunch of Republicans and really core Republican operatives calling them out, saying Mitt Romney, do not be a Judas. You know, and just very direct, very forthright. You have to do what you're supposed to do and why you were elected, and that was from largely mainstream Republican voices, and those were trending. I want to go back to one final thing about the algorithms and I'm, I'm pretty sure Melissa could confirm this, and maybe Paul is aware of it too. when there were the George Floyd demonstrations, the single most widely distributed shared items on Facebook, like eight or nine of the top ten were right wing to far right wing. Mm. And again, nobody who was in my orbit ever saw any of them.
0: What do you all think about now in terms of the narrative changing away from, you know, because of the Supreme Court? How important is that? How much of a motivation it is? And do you think that Biden, he's so far, his campaign has been about empathy, compassion anti-Trump and his slogan, build back better. But without, you know, committing, he's opposed to Medicare for all, for example, he hasn't really pronounced on the other issues we normally like to think. You know, and Paul said what made for those great movements in the 30s was the united aspect, but it was also the the existence of a powerful labor movement or a coming together of a labor movement. And we don't have that now, but we do have Tremendous anti capitalist sentiment on the part of the millennial generation and a lot of the others as well. So they want to hear a positive program about what's going to go forward. And I know Paul was saying that economic prescriptives isn't what's going to win elections. So I'd like to throw that out.
1: Uh, let me just say, say what I think might be the answer here is that you have a legislature, that legislature, as I understand it, can. Delay or block the appointment of a Supreme Court justice. That's one piece of the job. The other thing is that you have a legislative agenda, which those uh, Democratic Senate and Congress candidates are going to their own electorates with. That should be in Queens, in Brooklyn, it will be something. I'm sure that in uh, North Carolina, it won't be the same thing. Okay, that's another piece of the, the jigsaw. But the main piece of the jigsaw is We want a democratic America, and we don't want a second civil war or even the faintest possibility of it, because we already have what Alan Nevins, the historian, said, you know, we already have two peoples. That's We have that. Uh, That was there in the bleeding Kansas in the 1850s. You have that. But what we don't want is that to go ballistic. So I would concentrate everything on, on the presidency, and I would say, Look, the president will be someone who heals America, who actually stands maybe above. I wouldn't be frustrated if I was advising AOC or Bernie. If Biden said, I will stand as a paternalistic figure above this conflict, and I will, if New York wants to do the universal basic income, and if, yeah, if under the present rules, under Roe v. Wade, if, where is the last place I went was Toledo, Ohio where all the abortion clinics were closed down. If Toledo, Ohio wants to carry on um, closing on the abortion clinics, then of course I'm opposed to it, but I'm the president. I will represent everybody. I do think that that message is a message that can cut through. And um, what I'm really trying to say is that as someone who is on the extreme left of British politics, I also think that at certain times, you have to make it clear to people what the, whether it's a defensive or an offensive struggle, what the limits of the struggle are. And so going on to what Alan said about the algorithm, the no-brainer for me is we, we saw Syriza, the, the, the left-wing party uh, in 2015, won against the odds an election. It won as an alliance of middle-class and working-class people. But they were supremely good at doing things like this, message of the day. Message of the day is this. You know, we know that the strategists know what the message is, but they never tell. You know, I, I often think that they don't communicate to the ordinary person. So the person, the, the mum taking the kids to school or to the soccer, you know, the classic soccer mum, she's a dem, if she's a democratic, sort of engaged person, she needs to know what is the message of today? What am I really talking about? And again, the reason we get the top nine nine out of ten. Trending topics, all driven by the right, is that that's what they do relentlessly and ruthlessly.
0: And I want to bring you in too, because in earlier conversations, you've talked about what's Biden's ground game? You know, and we're seeing now, of course, the, our skewed elections are really about the swing states. Unfortunately, we in California almost have nothing to say. <laughs> but I just wondered what you would say about that. And Alan, of course, this is something you're thinking about too. It's really about where we go from today till the election time and what what you think should be the ground game.
2: Well, you know, I I think that the Democratic National Committee or whatever its name is, it's running the campaign to obviously concentrate on the swing states. It ought ought to be zeroing in now and building the resources for what we in Canada would just call the election day here. But you have a number of... uh, election days, you have the day when everyone goes out to vote in the beginning of November, but then you have other states are being their mailings now. But my point would be that the there should be a central part of the campaign that's preoccupied with identifying the vote. There's all kinds of sophisticated technology that enable parties to do it. And I'd be amazed if the Democrats aren't doing it. All I'm saying is it's absolutely crucial. And and it will be on election day. One way of heading off and the scenario that um, Alan mentioned that I've written about too, that is to say, the uh, fact that the it's the Democrats that will be doing the mail in ballots, and on election day you'll end up with, uh, on the surface a, a Republican majority, and then you could have chaos one way of avoiding that of course is if there happens to be a massive democratic victory if there's a big victory and who knows it could happen if some signs of disillusionment with trump mm. um, persist yeah. uh, but I, I like to know alan, alan given his yeah. relationship with mainstream democrats don't they have a group for example now that is thinking of the doomsday scenario let's put it that way when the Trump people tried to seize power illegitimately, I'd be astonished if there aren't a number of serious people in the democratic party at the top yeah. who are thinking about what, what steps will have to be taken right away to head that off. Are there?
3: Oh yeah, there are. And of course they, we've, we've yeah. seen in the press reports that they've hired an absolute legion of lawyers. There also seems to be a much, much more of a backbone to the democratic party in yeah. fighting a uh, erratic or a semi-legal result or or insistence upon victory by the Republicans than there was in 2004 or 2000 more notably. There also, I do think, per the military in that regard, yeah, I think Joe Biden is a candidate that is not a bad candidate to have there in terms of securing the support of the military, who I think have been relatively not behind Trump for, usually they get behind right-wing presidents and that hasn't been so pronounced this time. And then, of course, Biden himself has been quite a hawk. And very favorable to the military, so he's in a good good position in that regard. And I don't think that's insignificant in the scenarios we're laying out here. But yeah, there are focuses on that, but it's mainly lawyers. And uh, actually, there's you know real troubling signs about their inability to really wrap their head around the need to hone in and get a winning message in the northern swing states, mm. or really in any of the swing states. But you know, Arizona, North Carolina, Florida. I think they are actually doing better in terms of the way the state has yeah. trended versus recent elections versus in the upper Midwest. Now it should be said, because this goes back to actually, of all things, an inversion of the point Paul's made around economics. Trump in many respects has structured his, you know, with his understanding that he won the election in those northern swing states last time, he's structured his presidency around having a number of talking points on economics that would be appealing specifically to those states, most notably the newly negotiated NAFTA which we will, I'm sure, hear a lot about from Trump in the debates versus Biden, as he will focus on specifically, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. I mean, the the polls are up and down, down and up. It seemed like Minnesota was in play a little 10 days ago or a week ago. Now the polls look more favorable to Biden, but relying on the polls (laughs) is, is a fool's errand. But, you know, Ed, again, right to your point, very much this very fearful prospect of the election night result which really, at that, see, when, when Paul said the, the first half scenario and then the second half that I tried to separate out, I think the second half really is a, is a high likelihood of coming to, mm. that that's going to come to pass, that Trump may seem to be ahead on the electoral college vote because of the northern swing states and the way they're set up to count votes. Now About Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I do think that this is a game changer. But I do think that Democrats should be very wary the big national election that was a sweep for the Democrats in 2018 but remember only at the house level and not the senate level which again showed the greater skill that the Republican party has had at honing in on larger elections so at the senate level they didn't win the senate but they swept the house and you know and if you actually look at the raw house vote because of the gerrymandering it was an incredible crushing victory for the Democrats in 2018 but that's a national election there's a District for the House of Representatives, everywhere in the states, the presidential election will be different. Just the same old point, the swing states, you got to hone in on it. So how a Supreme Court battle plays out, it's going to be different than 2018. Incredible amount of energy was mobilized across the entire country coming off of the Kavanaugh hearings to defeat Trump, to give a defeat to Trump. In this time, it's going to require how that is responded to in the upper Midwest.
0: Alan, since I know you have to leave and I'm going to give everyone now a chance for final words, do you have anything that you finally want to say?
3: Yeah, just I really want to say I want to thank Paul for the framing and that I really think these are major (laughs) questions. You know, this was going to be a challenge because I, I do think the questions that Paul foregrounded are questions that haven't been thought through enough. I do think, by the way, a emotionally appealing framing for the progressive left going forward in the United States, I do think that would be important to develop and i think it does revolve around the united states of america as being becoming more diverse and being the most diverse country in the world i do think it also revolves around the tremendous popularity for left progressive politics in the population 45 and under okay if if only people even 50 and under could vote bernie sanders would be being swept into office in this country right now and again the united states also in an era and by the way in italy this weekend, we are likely to see horrific results out of the Red Belt in central Italy, Emilia-Romagna and Tuscany. It's a real tragedy for somebody who grew up partly in Italy to see this happening. Well, for all of the other countries in the world, when we see the rise, particularly Europe, of ethno-nationalism, right? You see it in India, you see it in the Philippines with people like Duarte, and of course, the Eastern European countries too. The United States is the most diverse country in the history of the world, and we, are going, we can be a rejoinder to that creating the kind of society that a democratic republic can actually fulfill its positive vision. And I I can see people like AOC articulating a very emotionally appealing articulation of that for a general public that would be very much a rejoinder to the types of emotional appeal that Paul is pointing to that the, the left has been so weak about. So that's my final thought. Thank you, well, Alan. I'd love, and, to hear I'd love to hear the responses. Yeah,
0: from you will on the, you will later. But um, let, let's just go quickly to Ed and Paul. And we don't have a lot of time, so keep it brief, your final thoughts.
2: Well, i I just, just say amen to Alan. In terms of uh, additional words, I wouldn't have any. Except to say that the country north of the United States is equally diverse, I would argue, and cosmopolitan and has managed to elect more left-wing governments. And with that self-righteous bit of Canadiana, I'll turn it over to Paul.
0: Okay, Paul, you get the last word.
1: Well, equally in the spirit of brevity, I think that I'd say to the the Democratic activist base and the left, just basic, basically understand that win or lose, you have to live in the same United States of America as the people who are going to vote for Trump. And the more reach out you can do now to them. It's all about time spent. I saw Alexis Tsipras in Greece spend time reaching out to people whose grandparents had been on the opposite side of a civil war, who tortured the people on the left who were about to take power. Tsipras spent so much time and energy reaching out to that constituency. That is what I would do. And the way you, you know better than I do how to do it. You live among them and, and you're there. I think the outcome is a potentially really good outcome. And that is that anything but Trump is a better outcome. And I would like to persuade members of the left and the left groups and the campaigns to that, that anything that gets rid of Trump is a quantitative victory.
0: Great words to end on. And I want to thank for participating and for your perspectives. This has been a terrific panel. I'd like to thank Paul Mason, Ed Broadbent, and Alan Minsky for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.